Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a toxicologist provides an update on the dangers of vaping. There's recent statistics nationally that the number of adolescents and teenagers that are using these devices for the first time is astronomically high. A registered dietitian nutritionist tells about the benefits and limitations of eating a plant-based diet. I like the new terminology of plant-focused eating. So it's not saying that you have to go strictly vegetarian, you have to go strictly vegan. What it's actually saying is, let's look at your diet and see is there ways that you can get more plant-based in your diet. And an English professor explains how healthcare connects with comics in the field of graphic medicine. All that, plus a selection from The Healing Muse, after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll hear about plant-based diets and how they differ from vegan and vegetarian diets. Then we'll learn about the field of graphic medicine, which merges healthcare and comics. But first, some urgent information about the dangers of vaping from a toxicologist at the Upstate New York Poison Center. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Several hundred cases of e-cigarette vaping-related lung injury have been reported to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention from all over the United States, including nearly 50 deaths. It's an urgent health crisis, and there's an ongoing investigation into the precise cause. And here in the HealthLink on Air studio to talk about it with us is Gina Marafa, a toxicologist and assistant clinical director of the Upstate New York Poison Center. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air. Hi, thank you for having me. Let's dive right in. Can you please describe the recent outbreak? Sure. So back in the summer, really June and July of this past summer, there were the first cases reported in the Midwest of patients that had been using e-cigarettes or vaping devices that were having lung injury and a variety of symptoms associated with that. At first, it was thought that it was maybe just isolated to perhaps a bad batch of product being used, um, but very quickly we realized that it had it was a larger problem. Probably late August, early September of this past year was really when we here in the Upstate New York Poison Center um, started to take the first cases of patients with e-volley or e-cigarette or vaping associated lung injury. Um, and since then, there's been um, a significant number of cases both called into the Poison Center here as well as across the country. So this started in the Midwest just by happen. That's where it was recognized first. There's nothing about the Midwest. No, it was just recognized there that patients had presented to healthcare facilities with complaints of nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, so more nonspecific complaints. Patients had weight loss. They had said that they had lost their appetite or had anorexia and then began having symptoms of cough, shortness of breath, fever. And then when they had gone to the hospital, 
they had, um, upon workup, it was identified that they had been using an e-cigarette or a vaping device. And then they had this lung injury on chest x-ray or imaging that something was somewhat unique in at least in otherwise healthy patients um and so those were the first cluster of cases that were reported um and were reported out of again out of the midwest and then a, an announcement came out from the centers for disease control about this um, again we didn't have those in june and july we didn't appreciate any of those cases um, here in our area, um, but very quickly beginning, like I said, the you know end of August and early September is when really the, the cases started being called into us here at the Poison Center. So now that there are hundreds of cases that have been recognized, what can you tell me about the, the people that end up in the hospital with this injury? Are they mostly male or female? So it's interesting. According to the CDC recent data, they release new statistics every Friday. Um, so as of December 3rd of 2019, the CDC reported 2,291 hospitalized patients with this EVOLI. Um, and as you already alluded to, there have been 48 deaths um, reported from the CDC. If you look at the statistics from New York State, so from the New York State Department of Health, um, this is data through December 4th, so only a day off from the CDC data. There are 201 cases um, reported to the New York State Department of Health, with 117 of those cases being confirmed or probable, so meaning that those patients meet the definition developed by the Centers for Disease Control for EVOLI. Um, and so what we're seeing, and this is both in New York State and in, um, in, in national data, it's, it's, again, across the country, so it's pretty much in every state. Um, it's, there is a large proportion of males. Um, there, the deaths that have been reported have been largely in older patients, though in New York State there's been at least one death um, that's been reported by the New York State Department of Health in a teenager. Um, and so largely the deaths are older patients, but again, the age range of the majority of people is relatively young. So in that, you know, 18 to 30 years of age range is a majority of those patients. So, and, and are these people who are otherwise healthy? So it's hard to say exactly of all, out of all of these patients, but from our experience, these are people that are previously healthy, um, that ha again have been using an e-cigarette or a vaping device. What's interesting is that if you look at all of the cases, about 85 or 86% of the cases of e-volley are associated with THC or marijuana use. Um, so a large amount of them are people who are using THC through these devices. Are they people who are previous cigarette smokers are they, or are they new to ingesting stuff into their lungs? Well, it's hard to say. So as we know, when we think about um, e-cigarettes or vaping devices, if you just look globally at the statistics of who, of people that use these devices. When they were first introduced into the market, they were intended for people 
as an alternative to help them quit cigarette smoking. Um, and certainly that's, there are still the number of people that are using it for that purpose. But what we've also seen, and there's recent statistics nationally, that the number of adolescents and teenagers that are using these devices for the first time is astronomically high. And so there's a, hu a large percentage of teens and adolescents that are using these devices that previously were not smokers that just began to use these devices. Um, so the as far as the patient characteristics, again, out of all of these, you know, nearly 2,300 patients, it's hard to say how many of them were smokers. We do know, though, that a lot of, at least because of the demographics of people using them, there are certainly people that have no history of cigarette smoking that have been using these e-cigarette devices in the past several months that have gone on to develop this e-volley or this lung injury second associated with its use. Now in terms of theories about what's causing the pulmonary injury, you mentioned THC, that a high number of these patients have been using the THC product. Are there other theories? Well, so it's interesting. So we don't fully understand the mechanism as to what's happening with this lung injury. What we do know is with these devices and with the products or the liquid inside these devices, there's a lot of different chemicals um, that are mixed both in the liquids and also that are then created when you actually put these liquids under high heat. So the exact mechanism is unknown. What the CDC recently found though, was that there were high levels of vitamin E acetate in um, both the product as well as in samples obtained from specific patients from lung fluid that was obtained under while they were in the hospital. And so the, if you look at it, there's the, again these very high concentrations of this vitamin E acetate. And again, we don't fully understand the mechanism, um, but as of right now, at least according to CDC, they're investigating that the vitamin E acetate is likely the culprit of this, of this lung injury associated with, um, with e-cigarettes. So it likely plays some role. It likely plays some role. I think the exact mechanism again is poorly understood. We don't, we don't, can't fully conclude anything right now because it's still a very much ongoing active investigation. Um, but again, there's a lot of chemicals that are created um, that people are inhaling when they're using these products. So whether it's multifactorial, whether it is related to this vitamin E acetate, I think it's too soon to say, but is certainly under active investigation. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking about vaping-associated lung injury with toxicologist and assistant director of the Upstate New York Poison Center, Gina Marafa. So I want to ask about the role that Upstate New York Poison Center is playing in this outbreak. You had a paper recently, you and some colleagues, in The Lancet, which is a prestigious journal dealing with vaping injury. Can you tell us about that? Sure. So the Upstate New York Poison Center, we cover 54 counties in Upstate New York. Um, and so we work collaboratively with, again, all of the healthcare facilities that call cases into us as well as the public. Um, and as part of our role, we also work very, very um, closely with the New York State Department of Health. Um, as well as our local health departments from a county level. Um, and so when we first began, when we received our first cases of this 
at the time it was called vaping associated lung injury, um, we had reached out to the New York State Department of Health to let them know that we had received um, what we believed to be was a likely or a potential case. Um, and from that, we it really became an active, ongoing, collaborative effort with the New York State Department of Health. We have colleagues um, also at the University of Rochester Medical Center, and they were they were actually the first hospital, um, at least that we received cases of of this of this e-volley. Um, and so we worked with the University of Rochester Medical Center. We have a medical toxicologist that works there. They're the ones that actually called the case into us. And then with us, the New York State Department of Health, along with the New York City Poison Control Center, um, which is the second poison control center in New York State, we've all been working collaboratively, both in receiving cases um, with this, reporting cases to the New York State Department of Health, and then also um, worked collaboratively to publish that paper, as well as to create a flow diagram or a flow chart to assist practitioners in evaluating these patients, especially as we're rolling into a very busy time with influenza or flu season. It's really difficult to differentiate flu and other viral illnesses from vaping-associated lung injury. And so collaboratively with, again, with the University of Rochester Medical Center, the New York City Poison Control Center, and the New York State Department of Health, we all work together in creating that diagnostic um, flowchart, again, intended for healthcare professionals to be able to help them evaluate and manage these patients a little bit easier. So is there an agreement on how to diagnose this? Well, so it's difficult as far as, so really what the diagnosis is, it's, it's often, it's very multifactorial. So thinking about other causes of illness um, and using what the definition from the Centers for Disease Control is really what dictated the beginning of this flow chart. So really evaluating patients for concurrent illness, comorbid disease, again, influenza and other viruses, cardiac history. Um, and then there are some specific tests to obtain, specifically like a chest X-ray or a CT scan, really looking at the lungs more specifically and looking to see if there are some findings that we've seen most consistently show up within these patients that have EVOLI. Um, so again, it's, it's usually a, an extensive medical workup that these patients undergo. Um, again, it's often a, a diagnosis that you have to exclude more common or even uncommon problems. Um, and then as far as the treatment, it's really supportive care. So meaning you're treating what you see in a patient. There's no definitive um, treatment for this. It's just treating the patient. What we've seen, at least his, in the cases that we've had um, here as well as across the, the country, patients have responded to steroids, um, which is a medicine that kind of helps decrease inflammation. Um, but there's no specific or set treatment for these patients. It's really just treating what, what their symptoms are and what your, the clinical findings are. I read about uh, one of these patients needing a lung transplant yes. uh, elsewhere in the country. Yeah, but so other, and I think, I don't recall where it was. I think it was in Michigan. I read about the same, um, the same patient who required a double lung transplant. Some of these patients have been 
very, very ill. If you look at this, some of the CDC number, again, there's 48 deaths with this, but then there's also been patients that who have been severely ill in the ICU on a ventilator or needing a tube to help them breathe. Um, again, that one case that was reported of someone needing a lung transplant um, or even, again, something like ECMO, which is a method to help really stabilize somebody, which is more of an intensive care medicine. Um, and so these patients have been, some of these patients have been quite dramatically ill. Um, and then there are some that are sick requiring hospitalization. And then there are also on the same end of that, some patients that are being able to be managed as an outpatient by their primary care physician. It sounds like this is sort of an acute illness, or it can be, do we know about any chronic illnesses tied to vaping or has that been around long enough for us to see that? So that's a really good question. So this is, again, very acute. This is a single, I think that this is an acute epidemic, if you will, of vaping, of a problem associated with vaping. But what we also don't know, and you make a very good point, what are the chronic health effects of vaping. And at this point, we really don't know that. Um, I think certainly there's some theories out there. There's been a few reports and some warnings about vaping causing seizures. Um, there's also been you know, some concern of, well, what, what happens to people who vape every day? Is there chronic lung injury that happens. And I think that we just don't know a lot of those those chronic health concerns secondary to vaping because it just it hasn't been around that long that we really know the long-term effects like we that are very well known with cigarette smoking. Well, if someone is set on vaping, they're really going they want to do it but they don't want to end up in the hospital, do you have advice for how to do it safely? Well, that's an interesting question. So I think that right now, and especially with the, this recent information from the CDC, the CDC is recommending, um, obviously, that people don't vape, um, but especially avoiding THC, specifically THC obtained from informal sources, um, and so avoiding those products. Um, I think that's the most important thing right now. Um, with that being said, I think that we, again, we don't know the long-term effects of vaping, and I think that if you are vaping, it's really important, I think, that if you talk to your healthcare provider to really talk about ways to, to potentially begin that process of stop vaping, especially because even we know just the the effects of nicotine and what that does as far as um, the tolerance and dependence on nicotine. Um, and so I think talking to your healthcare provider about ways to be able to stop to stop that is an important thing as well. But as of right now, at least as it relates to this outbreak, um, I think the most important thing is to avoid vaping anything from, and particularly any informal sources. Um, don't, if you have a device um, or a pod or whatever people are calling it, don't actually try to modify the ingredients in that device. Um, don't buy anything that isn't from a manufacturer. Um, again, so these informal sources um, seems to be where the biggest problem is. So avoiding anything like that, whether it's THC or not THC, avoiding anything 
don't try to make your own liquid or buy liquid from somebody else um, to be able to and then put it into your um, into your device or important take-home points. Well, good advice. Thank you so much to Gina Marafa, a clinical toxicologist and assistant clinical director of the Upstate New York Poison Center. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, is a plant-based diet for you? Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Why would a person opt to eat a plant-based diet? What benefits and what limitations would they face? With me in the HealthLink on Air studio to explore vegetarian and vegan diets is Upstate Registered Dietitian Nutritionist Maureen Franklin. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air. Thank you. Now let's be clear about the terms I just used. Um, what is the difference between vegetarian and vegan? So vegan is a person who would exclude all animal products. Vegetarian is someone who might include. Um, there's there's different categories called like lacto-ovo, ovo. Um, so some people might include some dairy. Other people might not include any dairy. Um, then there's the new term flexitarian, which people might include a little fish, maybe some meat once in a while. But the vegan is more primarily all avoidance of any kind of animal products. Uh, so the vegan would not have any dairy, but no. would eat mostly, veg- mostly vegetables. Mostly what we're talk- okay. basically talking about, more plant-based. So then what does plant-based mean? So plant-based is kind of a new way of thinking in terms of getting people to go more. And the term vegetarian or vegan, I think, sometimes scares people or that puts them off a little bit. So I like the new terminology of plant-focused eating. So it's not saying that you have to go strictly vegetarian or you have to go strictly vegan. What it's actually saying is, let's look at your diet and see is there ways that you can get more plant-based in your diet. So we talk about Meatless Monday, so that's kind of leaning towards that, saying, let's go away from meat a little bit more. Let's maybe do um, a veggie burger, or let's get more beans or lentils into our diet. So the plant focus, I think, is a nicer, easier way of people to saying, oh, okay, I'm just going to try a few more plant-based recipes. I'm going to do this. Maybe I still like a little bit of meat in my thing, but I'll make less. Um, an, an easy way to think of it is not make the meat the star of your plate. Make it the side dish. All right. So you could have meat occasionally or and or dairy. You could. Um, but and focus I think that's a lot it. on And I think that's the thing. It's a plant based focus for you. If you want to go strictly and you want to do heavy on plant based, that's a personal choice. If you say, Well, every once in a while I like some chicken, I like some fish, again, that's focusing on what can work for you. But the healthy part of it is going more towards that plant based because we're seeing all the literature help us look at plant based as being healthy, heart health, cancer, all the different research that's coming out about it. Now, I read a story in The Economist saying that a quarter of Americans between ages 25 and 34 say they're vegetarian or vegan. Does that sound about right? Do you Sounds see? it. And um, things that I've been reading is more in terms of the um, the whole millennials and, and in terms of the whole new generation. They're looking at things in a different way than people in other generations look. Um, they're looking at it in terms of uh, carbon footprints. They're looking at it in terms of economics. They're looking at it in terms of their personal preferences of what they feel, what their beliefs are, and do they not want to have any meat. So, yes, I think that's probably a very good number. Well, that same article said that sales of vegan foods in America rose 10 times faster 
faster than food sales as a whole during 2018. Oh. And you see more vegan products on store it's shelves, It's an right? explosion. It's a total explosion, I think, in terms of it. I mean, I remember years and years ago, you know, used to say people would talk about getting a veggie burger and be like, what? And, and it was like very difficult to find. Morningstar Farms, very well-known company. But now there are so many companies, so much of um, things that are out there, which I think is good. But I do think as consumers, we need to look at what do you want out of that product? What are you willing to spend? And what's the taste? So right. sometimes it's all those things that we need to look at. So in other parts of the world, other cultures, um, do you see plant-based or plant-focused eating more frequently? I think we do. I think that's just part of their culture. When we look at things in terms of falafel patties, you know, years ago, people were like, whoa, you're eating a falafel patty? Now they're very commonplace. Now we're getting into more of those plant-based things. The um, Indian culture with more of their plant-based curry dishes, those kinds of things, uh, more vegetarian-type things that we see in those cultures, yes. And I think we should learn from that. Well, let's talk about what are some of the reasons behind why a person would choose a plant-based diet? So some people might choose it from a medical standpoint in terms of it, because when you look at plant-based, we're looking at a higher fiber. Um, we're looking at a lower fat type of food, especially when you get into the dried peas and beans and lentils. Um, we could look at it from an economic standpoint. Meat is expensive, can beans, lentils that you could cook up yourselves, very, very economical in terms of it. And then it could just be a personal decision in terms of that, again, going more towards vegan, wanting to stay away from any animal products or animal-based products. So the eat local um, trend has been popular. Does that play into the environmental also? Oh, I think so too. Yeah, because again, get to know your farmer. And I know we've talked about that, you know, going to your local market. Um, you know, how does that farmer, what are they doing as far as their growing practices? Um, and getting to know them and saying, okay, how do you do this? And then supporting them locally, I think, is another big key. Uh, I have heard criticism, though, that some of the foods that are labeled plant-based are highly processed and that that makes them not as healthy right. as they might appear. Right. So, so when you look at that, again, that's the being a consumer. You want to know just because something is labeled glitz and the glitz makes you think that you're getting, my favorite is veggie straws, and they're green and they're orange. But when you look at that, what is in them? Are there any green beans? Are there any carrots? Maybe there's a hint way, way down at the end of the label. So you're taking a plant-based, unprocessed food, and as it goes down the line, it can become more and more processed to the point, like I know we had talked about, it can be ultra-processed. So is a potato great? Yes, because you can get a potato. You can get a skin. You can get a sweet potato. But as you go down the line, what's happening to those potato chips? We don't have the skin on them. They're processed. Salt's added to them. And then that's the thing you have to think about. What's happened to that plant and has added sugar been added to it, added salt, added fat, so you're taking it away from that natural state, which is the best, and making it more processed. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with registered dietitian nutritionist Maureen Franklin, and we're talking about the benefits and the limitations of eating a plant-based diet. Now, is there... Why would someone on a plant-based diet want to periodically include meat or fish or dairy? Are there is there something in a plant-based diet that's lacking that well, you can only um, get? Uh, people on a vegan tend you have to be very careful in terms of B12. So again, you have would have to be careful that you don't have a B12 deficiency. But that's again something you would you would want to check with your doctor. You would want to talk about. Um, so that provides that. Um, 
a lot of people get concerned about the protein, but your plant-based proteins, they're all out there. You know, your beans, your lentils, um, the new surge of, you know, the Beyond Burgers and Impossible Burgers, which are another type of thing, whole other category. But um, those are some of the things in terms of that, that people. And the only other thing is taste preference. Sometimes I love fish. So if I can get fish, I'd rather probably get my lean protein from fish rather than a steak. But again, personal choice in terms of it. Now, I think of plants as being carbohydrate, but can you tell us about what you just said, plant proteins? What is that? So you're right, because plant-based, such as lentils, dried peas, and beans, they're, they're a great combination. They're a carbohydrate source and a protein source. So you get added benefit of both. So if you're looking at your carbs in your diet and you're looking at your protein, beans can supply both of those, plus fiber, which is another great component that we feel is very, very heart-healthy and very healthy for our population. So that's a great thing that people don't tend to think about. And from I just think from an economical source, there are a wonderful thing out there that we probably don't use enough. And you mentioned peas. Are peas yep. are peas beans? Dried peas and beans. So that's a difference. So dried peas and beans, dried lentils, um, things like your chickpeas, your kidney beans, those kinds of things. Where you could, you know, everyone's so used to adding kidney beans to your chili. But it's like, okay, what else could I do? What can I do with chickpeas? What can I do with navy beans? What can I do with mung beans? Those kinds of things. Can I start experimenting with those? And there's great resources out there, too, that I don't think people are aware of. You mentioned the plant-based burgers and sausage sandwiches or mm -hmm. whatever plant-based sausage that we, we're seeing in the market now. Um, can you talk to me about how those compare with real meat? Well, what they're trying to do is replicate the taste and the feel. They call it the mouthfeel of meat. So what we're seeing is things like the burgers that are out there, they aren't a low-fat source. They tend to use coconut oil to get that mouthfeel and that taste, which, again, when we look at it from a nutritional standpoint, you have the potential to get more saturated fat. And is it just as close as having a steak? I don't, you know, it's, some of it's pretty close when you look at some of the literatures out there. So I, I caution people just because, yes, it can be plant-based, and they're using those plant-based, but they're still trying to replicate that meat taste and that meat feel. So that's where we're looking at the fat content. And some of them I've looked at, and I know we took some pictures, they're, they've got a good amount of fat content. They do have a good amount of um, saturated fat content. So uh, calorie count is it? Um, calories not too bad, not not that much of a difference because again you're getting you're not you're getting some carbs because it's a plant based. So again, they're talking usually a three to four ounce portion, and then when we're talking that, that's a small portion. So if a normal portion, you know, some men might be eating six ounces, you know, you're in the five five six hundred category for calories for a burger type thing. What about sodium levels? Those are going to vary, too, because, again, what are we doing? We're looking at it from a taste standpoint, so you want it to taste. So meat in itself has a natural amount of sodium. When you go to the restaurant, yes, the chef probably adds some, but at home, you don't have to add. You can add your herbs and spices, but they're adding some things. They're adding, quote, sea salt. So, again, people get fooled because, okay, what's sea salt? Well, it's still sodium. So there's all those little things that I think people need to look at. So are they healthier options then or not? I think it's something I want to try one, but I'll tell you the cost is unbelievable. I think it's very prohibited in terms of thinking that you're going to replace your meat with a plant-based, quote, burger. Um, I would rather cut down on the meat that I might be using or suggest it to people and then introduce more of the more economical sources. I think it's out there because I think that's the market. I think right now it's kind of like what low-fat happened years and years ago. So this is a big trend. This is what people want to see. Um, and I think you have to look at it because I think from an economical standpoint, it's a high-priced high item. 
Well, as we get into the cooler months, um, can you walk us through how a crock pot can be a nice way to experiment with plant-based eating? Oh, easy, because you could start with any kind of base. You could start with a broth base. You could start with a stewed tomatoes type base. You could start with tomato juice if you wanted to, and then you can add whatever kind of vegetables that are there. You could add eggplant. You could add onions. You can add, add peppers, whatever, and then experiment. Put in some chickpeas. Put in some different beans, some northern beans that you've never tried, or uh, try cooking some lentils. Um, there's a challenge out there that I think is very interesting. It's called a half a cup a day habit. It's trying to encourage people people to have a half a cup of dried peas or beans or lentils three times a week, which is an easy thing to do, but we don't think about that. We think, oh, I put it in my chili. I'm okay. But it's those kinds of things. And a crock pot is a great way to cook. Lentils, easy way of cooking in a crock pot. You can make lentil soup. You can make lentil stew, all of those kinds of things. When you mention the half cup a day habit, is that using dried beans? Dried peas, beans, or lentils. Um, it's put through, it's called USA pulses, so that's what the new terminology of dried peas and beans, they're calling them pulses. Uh, kind of interesting, uh, but people aren't aware of it yet, but they that's one of their challenges to show people you can cook lentils, you can cook dried peas and beans, and it's easy, and it's a great economical, and it's a plant-based source. When you look at them on the store shelf, though, it looks like there's so much work involved compared with throwing something in a microwave. Walk me through, how do you prepare from a dried, uh, dried um, beans to... A typical one is you can you can soak them overnight. Like if you want to do, like I love to make split pea soup, you can soak that overnight, put it in the water, soak it, rinse it, and then they're ready to go in terms of your cooking. Lentils, anywhere from 15 to 20 minutes, they can be... Uh, split lentils are going to be quick cooker than your whole lentils, so that's a quick, easy things in terms of it. If you don't want to do that, look towards your canned beans. If you're worried about an extra sodium, rinse them off, get rid of that juice. Boom, you can put those in the microwave. You could add that. So you're going to make a, a vegetable soup, and you normally add potatoes, and you normally add rice or those kind of things. Switch it up. Put some beans in there. You just take your same base, try a little less in terms of the meat, add more of the vegetables, and add maybe a, one or two cans of a different bean. Quick and easy. And in other cultures, beans are a prevalent part of the diet. Definitely. Mm -hmm. Now, and what do you usually mix beans with if you're eating beans? What is a good side uh, complement? Oh, I think you could mix it with any kind of vegetable in terms of it. Um, onions, peppers, great. Then maybe you want to mix it with a side dish of maybe some rice or something if you want to. So you're expanding it. So that's your main entree in terms of it. Um, the more you do, you could do different pastas. There's now... Um, there's bean pastas out there now. Again, they're a little expensive, but why not just take your plain, maybe you're just doing some macaroni and you're going to add some beans to it and you're going to add some onions and peppers and maybe some green beans, some basics things that you have. Now, beans, there's so many different types of them. Do they have different flavors or do you find that you need to sort of use your own spices for them? I think you need to use your own spices and I think it's something is the difference with the different dried peas and beans is the consistency. So if you think of the difference between um, split pea soup, um, it's more of a probably like a baby food type consistency, which I love. Other people are like, oh, I don't like that. They might like more of the kidney beans where you're getting more of a texture, you're getting more of a meaty taste in terms of it. So again, that's, I think, a, a typical what's your preference in terms of it. So maybe fun to experiment. It's very fun to experiment. And there's so much great information out there. Thank you so much to Maureen Franklin, a registered dietitian nutritionist at Upstate Medical University. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next, 
What can you learn from graphic medicine? You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. State Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Today we're going to explore graphic medicine with an English professor from the New York Institute of Technology. Elizabeth Donaldson is also the director of the Medical Humanities Program at New York Tech. She's in Syracuse for some lectures and made time to stop into HealthLink on Air. Thank you, Professor. Thank you for having me. What is graphic medicine? Um, graphic medicine, in its very broadest sense, is Meta- healthcare and comics put together. So, for example, it could be anything like um, edu- educational infographics that explain a condition, like um, um, diabetes or something like that, to a patient. It could also include medical illustrations that illustrate a process for medical students, too. And in th- at the other end, you have graphic narratives of illness. Uh, um, comics written by patients about their experience with with an illness or some other medical condition. Excuse me. And you also have um, examples of medical students writing about what it's like to be in med school using comics to do that. And there's a really interesting program at um, at Penn that does that. Well, how did all of this start? Um, that's a really good question. I think it was a kind of coming together of of comics studies, which has has grown and um, gained a greater academic presence, and also health humanities, which has tried to look at medicine through different les- lenses to see how art and literature and, and philosophy and all of those things uh, connect to medicine and what they can bring um, to the understanding of medicine and medical practice. Well, I've seen graphic medicine described as an emerging cross-disciplinary field. How does it link disability studies and the health humanities? Um, That's a good question. Disability is often about medical conditions, right? Um, You don't necessarily need to see a doctor about um, something static and chronic like blindness, but maybe you have a, a different medical condition and it requires a lot of encounters with healthcare professionals. Um, so um, dis- disability scholars are interested in these patient narratives and illness narratives, and they're very much interested in looking at disability not just as a medical issue, but also as a social issue. So there's this idea that Disability can kind of include um, the private medical condition of, of someone, and then that's called the medical model, usually. And then there's also a social model, which views disability as a minority identity. And there's um, a, a nice tension between these two models. Sometimes the medical model is seen as too individualized and pathologizing uh, um, for someone, and the social model is seen as a corrective to that. But we're, um, it's a kind of ongoing conversation, and uh, those, those categories and those models are things that people are constantly looking at and teasing out the nuances of. 
I've heard of crip culture. Can you right. describe what that is? Well, crip culture is um, basically a way of uh, appropriating this idea of the cripple and maybe even splendoring in its, um, um, you know, messiness and its abject status and trying to, and then elevating it, um, saying, yeah, I'm a, I'm a cripple, but so, so what? Um, yeah, that's me. That's, that's who I am. It's not something I'm going to be ashamed of. So it's one of those, um, those projects where, where somebody takes, takes a term in language and reappropriates it and tries to redefine it to make it more emancipatory. Yeah. So do you teach um, graphic memoirs in your courses? Yeah, I do. I usually um, filter them in through classes like literature and medicine. And also I teach a course on moods and madness, psychology and American literature. So I'm, I'm very interested in these, these, these narratives and I also find that my students react very well to them. They really like comics. Comics are not as intimidating to some of them as poetry or literature or a really long novel might be. So that's kind of the beauty of working with comics is their approachability for certain audiences. How did you as an English professor get interested in graphic medicine? Well, I, I came about it because I'm, I'm really a, a disability scholar of, of mental health issues. And, I've, and I'm especially interested in schizophrenia and narratives of schizophrenia. And there aren't that many around. Uh, so I'm, I'm always trying to find a way to bring uh, a, a better understanding of schizophrenia into the classroom for my students. And so it was hard to find narratives that did that. Um, it was hard to find books. There's Ellen Sachs, The Center Cannot Hold. Uh, she's a law professor with schizophrenia. And it's a, it's a great book, but again, it's really long. Um, and Ellen Sachs is, is a kind of super crip, a psychiatric super crip. There aren't too many Ellen Sachses out in the world. So I was looking for other texts that my students could engage with. And so I was, I was looking in the field of, of graphic medicine and graphic memoirs because I thought, oh, here's, here's something that really lends itself, right, um, um, to this kind of quicker communication with students. So I found things like uh, Seraphin's Asylum Squad. Um, it's a webcomic about uh, mental, um, mental health experience that was diagnosed as schizophrenia. And I also uh, came upon Daryl Cunningham's Psychiatric Tales, which is a nice collection of, um, of short comics based on his experiences working in a psychiatric ward in, in England. And he's an artist that also has a lived experience with anxiety. Um, so he's He's a really good communicator and has a great empathy with these patients. So he has a really nice uh, little chapter in that book uh, titled Schizophrenia, which goes through all the misunderstandings people have about that condition, like linking it to violence, et cetera. And then he kind of works on um, dismantling those, those bad stereotypes and those harmful stigma, stigmatized associations. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with English professor Elizabeth Donaldson about psychiatric disability, crip culture, and the humanities. So let's talk about how graphic memoirs challenge stereotypes of mental illness and psychiatric disability. 
Um, yeah, uh, I think today maybe there's a tendency to view people with severe mental illnesses as dangerous um, or as so unlike other people that they're difficult to understand. So um, a mental health memoir uh, helps us to understand that uh, the person with this condition really is a lot more like us than, than we, we might have imagined before. Uh, people with mental illnesses are not more prone to violence. They're more likely to be victims of violence, for example. Um, they do have thoughts and feelings, we do, like every, everyone else. Um, so it helps humanize um, people who are sometimes vilified in conversations about public health issues like gun control and things like that, and in news stories that um, really kind of leap to this association of violence and mental illness. Is that what makes mental health a good topic for graphic medicine, just because maybe there's some mystery that people don't yeah. realize about? Yeah, I think um, um, J Jessica Gross, who is a scholar at um, St. Louis uh, Pharmacy School, talks about m how mental health, um, graphic medicine makes mental health issues visible. It makes the invisible visible. So we don't really know what's going on inside somebody else's mind. Um, we don't really know what it feels like to to go through um, anxiety or depression or something like that that we haven't experienced. And comics, kind of that medium, forces the, the artist and the writer um, to make it visible in a way that is easier to, can be easier to comprehend for some people. So it's easier to comprehend, but in terms of the difference between a graphic memoir and a, and a written memoir for, from the author's point of view, right. um, talk to me about the difference from the creation of this. Yeah. Um, I, you know, when something's written, you have the, the words, you can hear them in your mind, and maybe you have a visualization when you're reading something. Uh, when you're looking at a comic... It's kind of already there, embodied for you, and this notion of of comics making making being so embodied might be important to that understanding, right? It it shows us how the body is reacting. It shows us how the person, right, is reacting. And maybe some people uh, sort of express themselves better through. The, a comic than through words, right? Yeah, absolutely. Everybody has their different medium, like everybody has their different learning style. Um, some people like poetry a lot. Some people are scared to death of it. <laughs> some people love to read, like me. Um, and some people like to read and to read graphic memoirs. So uh, they're, they're a, a great medium. They're a fun medium. And some of them are really beautiful. They're, the The artwork is really amazing. So it's uh, a really, it's a pleasurable experience. So how would you advise someone who's new to this genre of the graphic novel or the graphic memoir? Where should they start? And how, tell me some titles that, that they would sure. be able to. Um, well, I mean, if you look at Fun Home, which is a blockbuster graphic um, um, 
memoir turned into a Broadway play, that has an underlying disability theme of OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. So it's kind of there in the more mainstream comics. But if you want to look for something more specifically about disability, something like um, C.C. Bell's El Defo um, would be nice. Um, David B.'s Epileptic, about his brother's experience with epilepsy. Um, there are all sorts of titles about Alzheimer's and um, dementia and, and death, like Tangles and Special Exits. Um, Dave, um, uh, David Small's Stitches is a classic. It's about a boy who has um, cancer and um, surgery for that cancer, but his parents actually don't tell him that that's what's going on until later. So it's a, it's a really it's a really great um, great introduction to a lot of a lot of important bioethical issues, um, and that's that's also another important aspect of graphic medicine. What it brings to us, it it's a space like science fiction is a space for us to think about um, future technologies. Graphic medicine is a place for us to really examine bioethical issues in medicine. The, the best kind of go-to resource, if you want to start looking at graphic um, medicine works, is the graphicmedicine.org website. And um, this is also out of Penn, and it's a great collection with um, so many wonderful reviews of, of different titles. So you can go there and, and, and you can search for maybe a condition that you want to know more about, or just browse through, and they have some wonderful stuff posted there. What have you learned about people with psychiatric disabilities from graphic memoirs? Um, well, I kind of uh, came to this subject because I, I do have a kind of personal connection. I have lived experience of depression and anxiety, and two people in my immediate family have been diagnosed with schizophrenia. So, but one of the surprising things for me when I, f I find I read something like Sam Sharp's Mom, um, which is a graphic memoir about his experiences with his mother with mental illness, with schizophrenia, is how common <laughs> some of these experiences are to, to what I've ex experienced. And so there's something to be said about finding your experiences reflected in, in literature. And sometimes when they're, they're not, you feel like maybe an outlier or something. But so I think this is another one of the attractions of, of graphic medicine is you're not alone. You're, other people have gone through sometimes the same exact right um, thing as you have. And there is a little solidarity and comfort right in that. Well, thank you. Thank you to Professor Elizabeth Donaldson from the New York Institute of Technology. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Bridget Meads describes an unexpected encounter in her poem titled Exit at Triphammer. The meeting is not personal, and yet it is highly emotional. Exit at Triphammer. You were not easy to love, 
sprawled off the off-ramp dirt, March rain from above darkening your stained shirt. I parked the car and walked back calling help. Is he alert? Needle in arm, arm with tracks, the red and orange lights encroaching. You are what the world lacks. The sky was full of birds approaching. You will not see their flight, nor rain ceasing, the light reproaching. I paused, looked left, then right. The delay in my day was slight. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, finding a mental health care provider and modern birth control options. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening. Music